Welcome to Trinity United Methodist Church in Duncanville, Texas. Today is Transfiguration Sunday. If you could see Christ as He really is, would the vision be beautiful or terrifying? Join us now for the message, The Mountaintop Experience. Good morning and welcome to worship here at Trinity United Methodist Church in Duncanville, Texas. We are so happy to have you joining us in worship today, whether you are here in the sanctuary or you're worshiping with us at home. Today is Transfiguration Sunday. It's the typical Sunday right before the season of Lent. And normally the seasonal color for tra uh, Transfiguration Sunday is white. And I had plans today to wear my white clergy shirt and my white stole. But then we've had a very busy week in the news this week. And so I decided instead to wear my blue clergy shirt and my gold stole, and I'm wearing these colors uh, in the honor of the, as the colors of the Ukrainian flag in order to support them and all that they are going through. We have two scripture readings this morning. The first comes from the Old Testament book of Exodus, chapter 24. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there, and I will give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment, which I have written for their instruction. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. On the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. Moses was on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. Our second reading comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 17. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and his brother John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Then Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here if you wish. I will make three dwellings here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud a voice said, this is my son, the beloved. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell to the ground and were overcome by fear. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Get up and do not be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus ordered them, Tell no one about the vision until after the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. This is the word of God for the people of God. A year ago, I shared with you the story about a group of people who had been born blind. They were blind since birth, and they were able to undergo a surgery that restored their sight. And their amazing story is told in a book uh, that was written in 1959 by Mar Marius von Zinden, and it's entitled Space and Sight. And the book describes the experiences of these formerly blind as they learn to adjust to their newfound perception. For example, most of them actually learn to distinguish the different colors relatively easily and quickly. 
But the hardest thing for them to learn was how to perceive a space and distance and, and perspective. Some of the formerly blind, particularly those that were younger, were able to embrace their new ability and appreciate the visual beauty of the world a little bit easier. But others were just overwhelmed by all this kind of this new cacophony of, of these unfamiliar uh, sensations. And they became despondent and actually withdrawn. And many would actually purposely keep their eyes closed. So from their perspective, the world could make sense again. One 15-year-old boy, even though he was among the younger ones, was so distressed that he threatened to gouge his own eyes out. There was another 22-year-old woman who kept her eyes firmly closed for the first two weeks, but then she gradually began to open her eyes and explore her new sight. And the author of the book describes her reaction. The more she now directed her gaze upon everything about her, the more it could be seen how an expression of gratification and astonishment overspread her features. She repeatedly exclaimed, Oh God, how beautiful. Oh God, how beautiful. I wonder if at any time during that vision of Christ's transfiguration, Peter, James, or John thought to himself, oh God, how beautiful. In our gospel text that Wesley read, we have the story of the transfiguration of Christ. We find this story in all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In the story, Jesus climbs a mountain and takes with him his disciples, Peter, James, and John, the three that were closest to him, his, his inner circle. And he takes them up to the mountain where they receive this dramatic spiritual vision. And they see Jesus transfigured before their eyes. His face and his clothes become blazingly white. And then they see Moses and Elijah just standing there with him. Peter then offers to make, depending on the translation that you read, either three tents or three dwellings or three booths for Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. But before Peter can even finish getting the words out of his mouth, a bright cloud then suddenly descends upon them and this loud voice cries out, This is my son, the beloved. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. At this point, the disciples become terrified. They fall to the ground, averting their eyes to the vision before them. Like the blind who can suddenly see, the vision just becomes more than they can take in, more than they can assimilate. So they close their eyes so that the world to them can make sense again. Today, Wesley read this transfiguration story as told in the Gospel of Matthew. And Matthew is the Gospel that was written primarily for a Jewish audience. And so Matthew is always deliberately trying to make the connection between, Jew, uh, between Jesus and the Jewish faith. And Matthew knew that his Jewish readers would recognize the scene of the transfiguration from similar scenes that the Jews would be familiar with of the life of Moses. As Wesley also read earlier from the book of Exodus, Moses also encountered God in a cloud at the top of a mountain. And later in that same book of Exodus, it describes Moses' face, not unlike Jesus' face, as, being, as shining so brightly as the result of meeting God upon the mountain that he had to wear a veil over his face. Or we might, nowadays, he had to wear a face mask over his face. 
In both Matthew and Exodus, the high places are where we come into direct contact with God. The transfiguration, it happens on a mountain. Uh, Jesus' first sermon in Matthew is the Sermon on the Mount. In the temptation story in Matthew, Jesus is taken to this high mountain where Satan offers him all the kingdoms of the world. And of course, it's on a hill outside Jerusalem where Jesus faces his greatest challenge of all. As he is transfigured, Jesus appears with Moses and Elijah, who represent then the law and the prophets. Jesus had said earlier in that Sermon on the Mount that he had not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but he had come to complete them, to fulfill them. And in all these ways, then Matthew has highlighted Jesus' connection to Judaism. But the transfiguration is more than just an illustration of Jesus' ties to Judaism. In the transfiguration, Peter, James, and John receive the gift of sight. For a short window of time, they are given through the ability to see Jesus in his true reality, to see both the human and the divine simultaneously. And so here they perceive in a way, a different kind of sermon on the mount as they get this visual manifestation of the true nature of Christ. Last September and October, we explored the different branches, traditions, and denominations of the Christian church in our sermon series, Christianity's Family Tree. And we talked about how the Christian church consists of three major branches. And two of these branches, our own Protestantism as well as Catholicism, are two of the branches that we're most familiar with. But there's this third branch that is not as well known in the West. And this third branch of the Christian church is the Eastern Orthodox Church. And not unlike Protestantism, Eastern Orthodoxy has several sub-branches. Sometimes the most well-known of these is the Greek Orthodox Church. Uh, Two other of those sub-branches are, interestingly, the Russian Orthodox Church and the Ukrainian Orthodox Church. representing the Orthodox faith is is the predominant faith, the dominant religion in both of those countries. And for the Orthodox, the transfiguration is a central core image for discipleship. And here is an Eastern Orthodox icon, icon depicting the transfiguration. And to understand the Eastern Orthodox view of the transfiguration, we must first understand the Orthodox view of worship. Much has been written and debated over the last few decades about the use of traditional and contemporary styles of worship in the modern church. And each style has its pros and cons, and each style can either be done very well or very poorly. In very well done contemporary worship services, participants feel as if God has graciously reached down from heaven to meet them where they are. We can't make our way up to God, so God comes down to us, abides with us here in all this messiness of our life. And that is contemporary worship. In traditional worship, participants feel feel as if God has graciously reached down to us and carried us up to heaven. And so meets us right here in heaven where we get a glimpse then of the divine glory. And while we are in this divine glory, while God has taken us up to heaven, here we are convicted and comforted and strengthened for the journey of life on earth. So in contemporary worship, we experience God as having come down to us. And so therefore, in contemporary worship, we use 
music and other worship elements, they're a lot like things we find here on earth. Songs, for example, that sound a lot like what we hear on the radio. A message that might have a lot of everyday illustrations and analogies and a worship space that may look very, very, little, very little different from other types of gathering spaces that we find. In traditional worship, because now we experience God as having lifted us up to heaven, we use music and other worship elements that are deliberately not like the ones we find in everyday life. The music sounds nothing like the music that we hear on the radio. The words of the liturgy and the sermon use a specific biblical and uh, theological vocabulary. And the worship space doesn't look like spaces we find normally. It has things like icons and banners and stained glass. And we United Methodists, we, we use both forms of worship, often blending together elements in the very same service. But in Eastern Orthodox services, as I've said in the past, in an Eastern Orthodox service, it is like traditional worship on steroids. There is elaborate liturgy and ritual, uh, usually taken from very ancient sources. The priests are dressed in very fine attire, much more elaborately than I ever dress in. The worship space is just alive with icons and art and color. And there's often an incense filling the air. And so for the Orthodox, the more otherworldly the service and the worship space appear to be, the more they feel like they are in the very presence of God. Now when the Orthodox then read the story of the Transfiguration, it is for them an image of Christian worship and discipleship. When we go up the mountain, that is, as we enter the presence of God through the spiritual disciplines, the disciplines of worship and prayer and fasting and scripture reading, then we can see a glimpse of the glory of God. And for a brief time, we're transported to heaven and we can perceive just a little bit of what Christ really looks like. So for a brief time, our true sight is restored and we can see all the colors of the divine presence. We can see Christ transfigured. In the presence of God, we're made aware of our own mortality, but we're also made aware of the extravagance of God's love and grace and mercy. It is futile, though, to be like Peter and try to build some kind of dwelling where we can stay perpetually in the direct presence of God. That'll be a joy that's reserved for us for the next life. But in this life, eventually we'll need to come down from that mountain. We human beings cannot spend our entire, uh, our entire lives in worship or every moment of our lives inside the church building. Though I would like to spend a lot more time in the church building now than we have been able to do in the last two years. But the thing is, we have a mission to accomplish. We are being then sent out as disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation, the transfiguration of the world. Christian life can then be seen as a series of journeys up and down the mountain, uh, leading, us to witness to, uh, leading us to witness to the world the glory of our brush with greatness as, as we encounter uh, God. We go up to the mountain through worship and prayer and through other spiritual disciplines, and there we spend this sacred time in the presence of God. And some of these trips up the mountain are just part of the everyday rhythm of Christian life. We have other mountaintop experiences that shape us forever. But with each trip, we're able to see Christ just a little bit more clearly. 
And as we witness Christ's transfiguration, we ourselves are transformed. The Greek word translated transfiguration is also the same word that is the basis of the English word metamorphosis. As we see Christ as he really is, we are changed. And as we are changed, we are able to see Christ more clearly. And we go through a cycle of metamorphosis. Earlier this week, when our state officials made a pronouncement that providing gender-affirming medical care for transgender kids was, quote-unquote, child abuse, I thought about the connections between the words transfiguration and transgender, because both can certainly be compared to a metamorphosis. Now, I'll tell you, there's not, there's not many advantages to being part of the LGBTQ community, but I do think there is one thing that LGBTQ folks have really going for us. Whether one identifies as gay or transgender or one of the other letters of the alphabet, you're going to have to go through the process of coming out. And if coming out is anything, it is first and foremost a spiritual experience, a profound spiritual experience, a consummate spiritual journey. Because as you come to greater and greater self-awareness and then greater and greater self-acceptance, you become more and more open to how God is working in your life. To come out fully is a supreme act of faith because you're trusting God to hold you up when there are many, many others that want to tramp you down. But coming out is also a very hard process to go through. It's hard for adults. It's even harder for kids. And I think that trans kids who have the courage to say, this is the way God created me and I'm going to tell the truth to the powers that be, I think these kids should be held up as our spiritual heroes and not denied proper medical care and threatened to be taken away from their families. As the great reformer John Calvin said, Without knowledge of self, there is no knowledge of God. Our wisdom, insofar as it ought to be deemed true and solid wisdom, consists almost entirely of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. But as these are connected by many ties, it's not easy to determine which of the two proceeds and gives birth to the other. Now, as a Wesleyan, I disagree with Calvin's theology many, many times, but here I think he is right on target. As we see ourselves more clearly, we are changed. As we are changed, we see Christ more clearly. And as we see Christ more clearly, we are changed. A never-ending metamorphosis, a transfiguration of our very souls. As Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, as we behold the glory of God, we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, the Spirit. The good news in all this is that we, after having all these wonderful mountaintop experiences, Christ doesn't send us out into the world on our own. You know, just as a, sometimes we see a cat easily climb up a tree, only become too frightened to come down. Sometimes we can find that ascent up the mountain goes a lot easier than our return to our everyday lives. 
But just as God descend, uh, uh, just as Jesus uh, descended the mountain with Peter, uh, James, and John, then Christ goes with us out into the world in the presence of the Holy Spirit. So as we enter the season of Lent, let us go up the mountaintop to catch those glimpses of glory. Let us recommit ourselves to our Lenten discipline, disciplines of worship and prayer. Let us enter into a new and richer appreciation of the cross where a different dimension of the glory of Christ is revealed. And then let us come down the mountain and tell others the story of Jesus and share with them this story of glory. I pray that we'll all be able to experience the glory of the Lord and the next time that we behold the face of Christ, we will do so with new eyes. And we'll be able to say, oh God, how beautiful. Amen. We hope you enjoyed and were blessed by today's service. Join us every Sunday here on Facebook Live at 11 a.m. Next Sunday, we begin a new sermon series, Easter in the First Person. How did the events of Holy Week and Easter look like to those who were there? Come hear the whole story. You'll find recordings of all our services on our podcast, Jane's Most Excellent Church Adventure. Remember, we're now worshiping both in person in our sanctuary as well as online. God bless you in the week ahead, and we'll see you Sunday at Trinity United Methodist Church. Thank you.